Welcome back to TanakhCast. This is episode 112. We'll begin with a brief summation of Jeremiah chapters 20 through 23 and follow with a consideration of who gets to apply force and how. Chapter 20 begins with Yirmiyahu's fiery words, which seems to have gotten him into trouble with the authorities, specifically one authority. Pashkhor, son of Imer, Kohen, and chief temple officer. Pashkhor beats Yirmiyahu and has the prophet locked up in the Mahapechet, in the tower of the upper Benjamin gate of the temple. But I gotta wonder... What is your damage, Heather? Why is Pashkhor so bent out of shape by Yirmiyahu's stinging rebuke? As chief temple officer, I would understand the reaction if a riot had ensued, or if Yirmiyahu went crazy and began to break more than one piece of pottery, but... There's no indication that Yirmiyahu's remarks set anybody off except for Pashkhur, but from later comments when Yirmiyahu is released the next day and he tears into Pashkhur once again, he tells the Kohen that soon, soon the Babylonians will come and exact their retribution on him and the leadership of Judean society. On him, because Pashkhur, like the rest of the Kabbalan power, advocates rebellion against Babylonia, and Yirmiyahu has stated unequivocally that rebellion will lead to destruction. But this overtly political position of Yirmiyahu's is not an outlier for prophets. We have seen throughout the book of Isaiah that the prophet squares the circle of an idolatrous empire prevailing over God's people by stating that the idolaters win because they are God's cudgel that God uses to punish his people. For Yirmiyahu, resisting Babylonia is like resisting God's will, and also simply stupid. No one will come to Judah's aid against the juggernaut. There is no point in pursuing this fruitless endeavor, which isn't something you want to hear if you're mustering the troops to fight. But Yirmiyahu cannot stop, quote, his word was like a raging fire in my heart, shut up in my bones. I could not hold it in. I was helpless. Incidentally, Yirmiyahu continues with his dire lament about Babylonia even after, spoilers, the Babylonians defeat Judah, destroy the temple, and take most of the Jews into exile. And even when King Sidkiyahu himself sends advisors to Yirmiyahu in chapter 21 to advise, to beseech, to inquire, Yirmiyahu does not pull punches. A quick reminder about Zidkiyahu, Zidkiyahu was Yoshia's third son. After Yoshia died, Yehoahaz, the eldest, ruled, and then Yehoiakim, and then after him, his son Yehoiachin was crowned king. Yehoiachin ruled for about three months, but after launching a failed uprising in 597 BCE, Yehoiachin was exiled to Babylonia. Nebuchadnezzar himself picked Zidkiyahu, the exiled king's uncle, to take over. Nebuchadnezzar felt that Tzidkiyahu would be more amenable, more cooperative, and better behaved. So imagine you're Tzidkiyahu, you're sitting on the throne only because your predecessor was removed by force, and along with his officers and advisors, taken prisoner to Babylon. The former king may be gone, but in the minds of the people, definitely not forgotten. So for most of the reign of Tzidkiyahu, there was this shadow cast over his rule of the deposed king languishing in a Babylonian exile, locked up in some jail or something, and how Tzidkiyahu could never forget that the same Babylonians, the deposers, the jailers, installed him as king, and all the people knew it. And I guess you could say that Tzidkiyahu wasn't really prepared to be king, and thus had to rely on his advisors and officials, all of whom, like Pashkur, wanted to rise up and smash the yoke Babylon placed on their necks. 
Perhaps Tzidkiyahu was hoping that Yirmiyahu might have a miracle up his sleeve. Yirmiyahu tells Tzidkiyahu's messengers that God himself, quote, will battle against you with an outstretched and mighty arm, with anger and rage and... They will be met with fire and fury like the world has never seen. And to make a long and torturous story short, it will be bad. Very bad, very, very bad for everyone. And though God tells Yirmiyahu in chapter 22 to go to the palace and deliver the usual repent, repent message, it probably won't matter because the folks in power are too drunk on power and they won't listen to Yirmiyahu's call for justice for the weak and vulnerable. Quote, your eyes and your mind are only on ill-gotten gains, on shedding the blood of the innocent, on committing fraud and violence. Oh, damn! In the end, there will be ruin and exile. Chapter 23 continues with the attack on bad Jewish leadership. Quote, it is you who let my flock scatter and go astray. I, you gave no thought to them, but I'm going to give thought to you for your wicked acts. Look. I'm coming to get you. And not only the wicked acts of the leaders stoke God's anger, but also the false prophets who spread fake prophecies. Quote, but what I see in the prophets of Jerusalem is something horrifying, adultery and false dealing. They encourage evildoers so that no one turns back from his wickedness. To me, they are all like Sodom and all its inhabitants like Gomorrah. It will not end well for them either. In short, God is opening up a big can of whoop-ass and there's enough to go around. Thus endeth the summation and beginneth the consideration. This episode's portion begins with physical assault and incarceration. Pashur pummels Yirmiyahu and has him locked up in the Mahapechet, in the tower of the upper Benjamin Gate of the Temple. These two things, physical assault and incarceration, two things that the state insists are its exclusive purview. And I think that most people would agree that probably it's a good idea if only one you know, social group or force has a license to incarcerate. We wouldn't want you know, random people locking up folks for various reasons. We tend to call that kind of thing kidnapping, and that is generally frowned upon. In Canada, where I live, if the kidnapping doesn't result in homicide, then it's considered a hybrid offense that comes with a maximum possible penalty of life imprisonment. The Torah, incidentally, regards kidnapping as a capital offense. But what about the state's exercise of its power when it assaults citizens? And I'm sure you're thinking, well, what do you mean by assault? Well, we have the example from this week's portion, quote, Vayake Pashchur et Yirmiyahu Navi, which Safaria, my new go-to for anything Jewish texty, that's at safaria.org, renders, quote, Pashchur thereupon had Jeremiah flogged. Although the verb vayake could also be understood that Pashchur did the pummeling himself, but let's get down on an even more basic definition. In Canada, where I live, assault is defined by section 235 of the criminal code as follows. A person commits assault when, A, without the consent of another person, he applies force intentionally to that other person directly or indirectly. B, he attempts or threatens by an act of a, or a gesture to apply force to another person if he has or causes that other person to believe or on reasonable grounds that he has present ability to affect his purpose. Or C, while openly wearing or carrying a weapon or an imitation thereof, he accosts or impedes another person or begs. 
Proof of offense would include identity of the accused, date and time of the incident, jurisdiction, including region and province. The accused applied force on the victim. The accused intended to apply force and was not by reflex or carelessly. The manner in which assault occurred, whether by fist, open hand, or object. Injuries, if any, that occurred. Comparing physical build between the accused and the victim. That the complainant did not consent that the complainant did not assault, threaten, or provoke the accused, and whether an alcohol was involved. So assault at its most basic stripped-down understanding is an application of force, which according to Burton's legal thesaurus points to coercion. So what's coercion? According to West's Encyclopedia of American Law, coercion is the intimidation of a victim to compel the individual to do some act against his or her will by the use of psychological pressure, physical force, or threats. That's pretty broad. But it does give a sense of what's involved when someone says assault. It just doesn't mean me putting my hands on you without your consent. But for the sake of the discussion, let's focus on that aspect. So, is the state allowed to put its hands on me without my consent? Well, some folks would argue that in certain circumstances, yes. Let's say I'm rampaging through the streets, breaking windows and threatening folks enjoying their Sunday brunches. I think after some warnings and requests for me to stop, I, I think most folks would, would say that the state should intervene. Police officers should try to stop me physically before I truly hurt someone. But now we've introduced a whole new set of questions, because once we say it's okay for the police to put hands on me, how much hands should they put on me? Should they seek to restrain me? What if I resist? How far can things go before the situation is considered escalated so that more than restraints might be deployed against me? In other words, once you say that the state can apply force against people, what's the scale and how fast can one go up that scale? So you'd say, well, there are rules for that. We have the police, they train so that they know when to apply, you know, some force or maybe a little more. And when you see these towns and when you see these thugs being thrown into the back of a paddy wagon, you just see them thrown in rough. I said, please don't be too nice. Like when you guys put somebody in the car and you're protecting their head, you know, the way you put their hand over. Like, don't hit their head and they've just killed somebody. Don't hit their head. I said, you can take the hand away, okay? And we trust that when the police escalate, it's because it's warranted. He just shot his arm off. We got pulled Whoa. over on Larpener. I told him not to reach for it. I told him to get his hand off it. He had, you told him to get his ID, sir, and his driver's license. Oh my God, please don't tell me he's dead. Please don't tell me my boyfriend just went like that. Just keep your hands where they are, please. Yes, I will, sir. I'll keep my hands where they are. But I think it, that at the heart of all these laws and regulations is the understanding that ideally the state, the police, whomever, really shouldn't be putting their hands on people. Putting hands on people is not okay. It's assault. I can't do it to you. You can't do it to me. So really, it's only in extraordinary circumstances that it would be okay for representatives of the state to do it. And if they did put hands on me, they might have to account for it later, possibly, maybe. Depends on who the me is, I guess. My son loved this state. He had one tattoo on his body, and it was of the Twin Cities, the state of Minnesota with TC on it. My son loved this city, and this city killed my son. And the murderer gets away. Are you kidding me right now? We're not evolving as a civilization. We're devolving. We have taken steps forward. People have died for us to have these rights. And now we're devolving. We're going back down to 1969. 
Damn! But what about societies where no such laws or regulations were in place? Like in imperialist Syria, where the king and his minions would regularly employ torture, mutilation, and what's been called calculated frightfulness to keep subjects in line. Because again, what is the ultimate purpose of the state using force and coercion against the people except to keep people in line? And maybe that's not the explicit purpose. No one's going to get up in front of a camera and say, yep, uh, yeah, that's right, that's why we do this. Maybe they'll say something about stopping crime or protecting the public, but really it's, it's so people don't get any funny ideas and, and, and they should just behave themselves. Anywho, the Assyrian political system being an absolute monarchy was based on loyalty and allegiance to the king. And any instance of a vassal seeming to diverge from absolute loyalty or allegiance not only offended against the king, who was the viceroy of the gods, but of the gods themselves. You're in big trouble, mister. 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 Look, oaths were sworn. In the name of the gods. And you've gone, done, and violated them. So punishment, I mean justice, should be swift and resolute. Not only was the safety of the monarchy politically at risk, this was also a religious offense. You have offended the gods with your rebelliousness, so now the gloves have come off, and it's force application time. So depending on who did the rebelling, let's say the head vassals, well, they might be the only one to get what they so rightfully deserve. But if not only the head vassal had the temerity to do what he was, you know, wasn't supposed to do, then the other folks might get swept up in all that justice. And that would involve the following, maybe. You know, sort of pick one. Uh, being staked to the ground and skinned alive, having your eyes put out, your hands, your feet, or tongue, or some combination of cut off. Uh, being beaten and then impaled on the stakes you know, that were set up around the city for display. Asher Bonipal recounts how, quote, I flayed as many nobles as had rebelled against me and draped their skins over the pile of corpses. Some I spread out within the pile, and some I erected on stakes upon the pile. I flayed many right through my land, and draped their skins over the walls. In another instance where Usher Bonipal dealt with, you know, rebels, he, quote, felled 50 of their fighting men with a sword, burnt 200 captives from them, and defeated in a battle on the plain 332 troops. With their blood I dyed the mountain red like red wool, and the rest of them, the ravines and torrents of the mountains, swallowed. I carried off captives and possessions from them. I cut off the heads of their fighters and built therewith a tower before their city. I burnt their adolescent boys and girls. And in another instance, quote, In strife and conflict I besieged and conquered the city. I felled three thousand of their fighting men in the sword. I captured many troops alive. I cut off some of their arms and hands. I cut off others, their noses, ears, and extremities. I gouged out the eyes of many troops. I made one pile of the living and one of heads. I hung their heads on trees around the city. Oh, damn! All of this to uphold the honor of the gods and enforce their justice. If you recall, the northern kingdom of Israel fell into the hands of these people in 722 BCE. But that's ancient history, isn't it? And that's what our enemies do. They're terrible people. We would never engage in such brutal and barbarous practices. We have restraint. We are civilized. We only have the Mahapechet. If you recall in the opening verse of chapter 20, Pashchur thereupon had Jeremiah flogged, and as Safari renders it, put in the cell 
at the upper Benjamin gate in the house of the Lord. Well, it's not exactly clear what a mahapichet is. The term appears three other times in the Tanakh, and in these instances, it could either mean an isolation cell, or in one case, it might refer to pillories or stocks where the head and hands are secured. In either case, it's not pleasant. So Yirmiyahu made a public display of his disapproval of current Judean policy, smashed a piece of pottery that probably belonged to him. And that got him knocked about and punished by the state. Folks often say that a conservative is a liberal who has been mugged. Actually, the original quote by Irving Kristol referred to a neoconservative as, quote, a liberal who has been mugged by reality, which is a whole different discussion. But for the purpose of our discussion, let's focus on the corrupted quote that insists that once a liberal experiences crime personally, all of her bleeding heart views about how people are good and, and nice and etc., uh, you know, just drained away and she'll come running to the state for protection and encourage the state to take even stronger, more punitive hand against criminals to apply more force to more bad guys, all in the name of justice. Except this little nugget of conventional wisdom is not borne out by research. Study after study shows that victimization experiences of, or anxieties about crime are not strong predictors of punitiveness, meaning that people who want the state to be more punitive generally have little direct experience being a victim of crime. They just want the state to... So if you see somebody getting ready to throw a tomato, knock the crap out of them, would you? Seriously. Okay? Just knock the hell... I promise you, I will pay for the legal fees, I promise. And this urge for the state to use even, you know, more force against bad hombres doesn't just stop with feels. It's an industry that rakes in hundreds of millions of dollars a year in the United States. The United States has a prison population of over 2 million people and a country of 312 million. That's about 716 prisoners per 100,000 of the national population. As many criminal justice reformers have stated, only 5% of the world's population lives in the U.S., but it's home to 25% of the world's prison population. The runner-up is China, with a prison population of 1.6 million, but China is a country of over 1.6 billion people. Their prison population rate is 121 prisoners per 100,000 of the national population, and that does not include folks in pretrial detention or quote-unquote administrative detention. By the way, Canada, where I live, is a country of about 34 million people. We have a prison population of about 40,000. That's 118 prisoners per 100,000 of the national population. These numbers are based on the World Prison Population List, 10th edition. I've included a download link at thenextjew.com. It's from 2013, but I imagine the numbers have not gone down since then. If you don't believe me, you can check out you know, Ava DuVernay's documentary 13th on Netflix. In the U.S., folks refer to this sector as the prison industrial complex, a collaboration between government and industry that use surveillance, policing, and imprisonment to, quote, get tough on crime. And folks even refer to the school-to-prison pipeline, where students increasingly find themselves swept up in the juvenile and adult criminal justice systems due to zero-tolerance policies and the use of police in schools. So now activists and organizers are beginning to talk about prison abolition, that's right, imagine that. Eliminating imprisonment, policing, and surveillance, and creating lasting alternatives to punishment and imprisonment. But what about muggers and rapists and murderers? How will we deter them? How will we punish them? I mean, I mean, mete out justice to them. The thing is that jails are not overflowing with muggers and rapists and murderers. According to a 2017 uh, statistic set, presented by the Prison Policy Initiative, 
In state prisons, violent offenders make up about 52% of the state prison population, but in local jails, they make up about 28%, and in federal lockups, they make up about 7 Incidentally, one in five people in federal prisons is there because of a nonviolent drug offense. There are over uh, one million drug arrests each year. That's the war on drugs. Most incarcerated youths are locked up for nonviolent offenses, and unsurprisingly, whites are underrepresented in prison populations while black people are overrepresented. In one way or another, the U.S. justice system keeps tabs on over 7 million people, of which 3.5 million are on probation. Whatever the system is, it's definitely not just. And so the prison abolition movement has some ideas, such as substituting incarceration with supervised release, probation, restitution to victims and or community work, and decreasing terms of imprisonment by abolishing mandatory minimum sentencing. Ending the war on drugs would help, too, as well as a bevy of social programs and treatment for the mentally ill, who more often than not end up incarcerated. It is precisely this kind of punitive regime that Yirmiyahu railed against when he said, quote, Do you think that you are more a king because you compete in cedar? Your father ate and drank and dispensed justice and equity. Then all went well with him. He upheld the rights of the poor and the needy. Then all was well. That is truly heeding me, declares the Lord. But your eyes and your mind are only on ill-gotten gains, on shedding the blood of the innocent and committing fraud and violence. Assuredly, Thus said the Lord concerning Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah. They shall not mourn for him. Ah, brother, ah, sister. They shall not mourn for him. Ah, Lord, ah, his majesty. They shall have the burial of an ass, dragged out and left dying outside the gates of Jerusalem. If you like what you heard today, spread the word about TanakhCast. Send a friend an email to say, Hey, would it kill you to check out TanakhCast? Or even better, write a brief review at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher Smart Radio, or SoundCloud. It's a small thing, really, but it will help other people who might be interested in some Bible learning find this podcast. Or if you want to help in a bigger way, support us at Patreon. Just search for TanakhCast and pledge your shekels either on a one-time or monthly basis and receive special blessings from the Most High. I thank you in advance for that, and encourage you to join us again in two weeks for episode 113, when we continue the book of Jeremiah with chapters 24 through 27.